Welcome to the Hacking Consciousness Podcast. I'm your host, Adrian Baker. My guest this week is a man with a big heart and a remarkable story. Ian Benoit is a graduate of the prestigious West Point Military Academy who flew Black Hawk helicopters for the U.S. Army. Upon exiting the military, Ian also worked as a sales representative in the pharmaceutical industry. Eventually, Ian bumped up against the limitations of what the Western medical model had to offer. Finding healing for his own traumas through working with plant medicines such as ayahuasca, ibogaine, and 5-MeO-DMT, Ian now spends much of his time advocating for the rights of veterans to heal from PTSD through the use of plant medicines. If you're interested by what you hear in this conversation, I would strongly encourage you to consider how you can support this cause, which is quite simply the reasonable demand of people who have put their lives on the line for this country to heal from the psychological and emotional wounds of warfare in a way that's most appropriate and effective for them and their families. On hackingconsciousness.org and on the Hacking Consciousness social media platforms, I'll be including links to individuals and organizations that are advocating for the right of veterans to work with plant medicines, organizations such as Veterans for Entheogenic Therapy and Weed for Warriors, and of course, Ian's own website. I hope that you'll stay tuned after my conversation with Ian has concluded, as I have a few thoughts to share on why I really do feel that the work that Ian is doing is so valuable and that the timing is so ripe right now in the United States to be having this conversation. Moreover, I feel that veterans are really in a unique position of political power to push the boundaries on conversations around plant medicines and on psychedelics. I'll share my thoughts on why that's the case and why I'm particularly keen to support their cause. Changing tracks, a small favor to ask. If you enjoy this podcast, please take a minute to leave a review on iTunes or Stitcher, or the Google Music Store, positive reviews really are essential for helping to elevate the profile of new podcasts such as this one. You can also support the podcast by signing up to be a contributor on patreon.com slash hackingconsciousness. Even $1 an episode really helps. I really want to do my best to keep this podcast ad-free, and I want to be able to generate more interesting content for our listeners. If we can get an income stream going, I can recruit more people to help produce more engaging content. Thank you to everyone for your interest and for your curiosity. And now for my conversation with Ian Benoit. Ian, how are you, bud? Welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Adrian. Thanks for having me. Hey, thank you for being on. I really, really appreciated it. After I came across some of your previous interviews and read some of your work, um, I was really bl- blown away by what you had to share and knew that I wanted to uh, really want you to come on. So I appreciate you making the time because I'm sure you're busy. <laughs> Happy to be here, man. Well, let's start off by um, just telling folks a little bit about what is it that keeps you busy these days and you know what we're here to talk about what with your work with veterans and um let's start there yeah well well, for myself i had started using these uh, plant or earth medicines after i got out of the military uh, while i was in law schools i was kind of doing my own reintegration back in the civilian world and uh kind of not realizing that I was getting myself reintegrated enough to be a father and a husband. And then three years ago when I connected with veterans at a uh, conference here in Texas around cannabis and veterans and PTSD, that just completely opened me up and started my uh, really big second round of healing. And of course I already knew these things could heal, but then I started to see the bigger picture of, you know, trauma and childhood trauma being connected to adult trauma and and as I started to do the work on myself uh, I encountered other veterans already knowing the power of these plants but then using them on myself and so I just started sharing that experience and knowledge and everything that I had and just really working with other veterans to kind of you know 
take it upon ourselves to reintegrate back into society since there wasn't really any other methodology currently available to do it. <laughs> yeah. Do you mind uh, being a little, sort of breaking down for people? Just I'm sure many people will know what you mean by plant medicines, but for those who don't, sort of what specific ones are you referring to that you've worked with personally and with veterans? Sure. You know, and I guess that's just the sort of the best term. I mean, you know, earth sure. medicines is probably more accurate, but that just sounds a little more woo-woo because you've got these fungi <laughs> in animals as well. But, yeah, so I'm referring to uh, cannabis, and you know, which uh, is really the plant that these veterans use to get off all these other medications when they might have even tried to kill themselves. And... Cannabis is really the gateway to all these other plant medicines, which would include uh, LSD, you know, psilocybin, the active ingredient in magic mushrooms, uh, even sort of semi-synthetics like MDMA, and then of course ayahuasca, ibogaine, and uh, 5-MeO or the or the toad uh, bufotoxin. And then there's others as well, but I think those are kind of the, the main core that, uh, as far as the veteran community is using uh, in this path. Okay, great. Um, thank you for highlighting that. I just wanted to kind of let folks know. And it, I'm glad you mentioned cannabis as well, because, you know, I really got excited. I saw, you know, your work with ayahuasca, and I had an extremely powerful um ayahuasca retreat recently which has really sparked my interest in specifically these plant medicines before you know i certainly was experienced with mushrooms or lsd but uh i really came to appreciate the healing properties of that but it's great of you to point out that cannabis which many people who don't live in a state with legal or at least medical marijuana aren't familiar with the whole CBD phenomenon. So can you kind of explain for people who don't really know marijuana as, you know, they just think of it as something to get high in a recreational drug, what is healing about or therapeutic about uh, marijuana or certain strains of it? And what do you mean when you say it's sort of a, it's really an entry point for these veterans to transition with their therapy? Sure. Well, uh, first off, the challenges veterans come back with is, is PTSD, right? Is from uh, combat, you know, from service trauma or from, from war trauma. And with this PTSD means that the biggest thing is they can't sleep at night because they're hyper aroused and they're having nightmares and flashbacks and, you know, they can't... They, they put themselves in a situation where every decision, every moment's life or death, and life's not like that normally. Even for animals, it's not like that all the time, right? And so then they're trying to come back now and deprogram out of that hyper-aroused state. And they try to use other things like alcohol or pharmaceuticals, which don't provide that opportunity for sleep. And cannabis, one of its primary benefits for these soldiers is that it allows you to sleep at night. And if you can't sleep at night, all the other problems you might have during the day uh, are going to be just made all that much worse. So it's going to allow them to sleep at night because basically cannabis is able to turn off the REM sleep function for the body so that you don't have those uh, nightmares. And so then you can w wake up and have, uh, you know, feel refreshed and not feel like, you know, you just uh, sat in a prison all night of going through all the, the bad things that happened to you while you were deployed. And then the cannabis can help them with uh, anxiety, depression, hyperarousal, you know, mi minimize all these triggers, right? And then of course, within that, <laughs> there's all the personal biochemistry of each individual, and then all these different strains. You wouldn't want to be giving veterans who just came back from war, like as an example, strains uh, that are more, you know, sativa, that are going to have more energy in them because that's not what they need. They need to be right. taken in the other direction. Exactly. So, uh, but, but the biggest thing is that they're going to be able to get some sleep. They're going to be able to relax. They're going to be able to get some uh, additional pain relief, muscle relaxation, just overall decrease in anxiety and hyperarousal with a good night's sleep. And that's just the, then the foundation because, you know, 
the cannabis still is really only treating the symptoms of PTSD and it's just a better medicine than the currently available pharmaceuticals, but it's not ultimately, in the majority of situations, going to create an opportunity to underline, you know, address the underlying trauma. And to do that, you've got to move to these other, uh, you know, more powerful plant medicines. Okay. And so let's transition to that. You know, let's talk about and, and, and let's, it's probably helpful to run through the different modalities, ayahuasca, iboga, 5-MEO, and what are they and what is helpful for certain strains of trauma or for different people and why. So um, sure. let's, let's start getting into that. And if you want to start by just sharing personally what they did for you, um, that might be a great starting point. Yeah. Um... I did ayahuasca 20 years ago this, this, you know, uh, this year, well, 20 years ago, this, uh, 20 years ago, let's try that again. <laughs> it is 20 years ago and for the first time. And, um, I really didn't know what I was doing. I didn't know why I was doing it. And I had some nice experiences that, uh, just me getting to know the medicine. And then when I, as I told you, met veterans over three years ago, a year after that is when I, went back to ayahuasca for the first time, you know, since that 18 years ago. And uh, I did a three-day ceremony where on the second day, after I'd done all this body work on the first day and kind of then working on the heart work on the second day, I uh, said, hey, okay, Mother Ayahuasca, this is great, you know, <laughs> you've cleaned up my heart, let's go take this out for a ride. I mean, literally, you know, that's what I said to myself, right? And as soon as that happened, I was transported to the memory of uh, sexual trauma that I'd had when I was in first or second grade. And I was just, first, I'm just flabbergasted, you know, because I really hadn't, I've never had tremendous visions on ayahuasca, but to, to be able to go there and uh, really, it was like a holograph, uh, and go there and then have compassion. After I had compassion for myself first, but compassion for the person who had done this to me for some bigger, deeper understanding that, you know, they, they, they had, you know, <laughs> what am I trying to say? That I had to let go. I had to accept the fact that they're not that it could be justified reasons, but that they could have reasons in their life why this happened. I had to, I had to go to the bigger picture. And of course, when I did that and had compassion and empathy for this person, you know, the, the whole, energetic, uh, you know, negativity that I had on myself was just completely released. And then you realize it's, it's you're freeing yourself by freeing this other person. And, uh, yeah, so it was super powerful for me. And then from there, just, you know, once that one had been opened up, all the other things that I needed to work on for myself in my life, I was able to do. And I think ultimately that's what ayahuasca is, uh, you know, in, in this kind of talking about how these different things fit together. It can really work on the emotional trauma. It can untie the knots for you. It can allow you to see things that have happened to you from a place of less fear and judgment that allow you to re-experience what happened and then recontextualize it in a bigger picture, bigger story called your life that you're then okay with it. And then you can accept it. You can love yourself. You can forgive yourself. And I, I think ayahuasca is, you know, there's, there's nothing better for, for working on that trauma. And if you don't have the trauma, you can work on growth. <laughs> there's no problem with that. But of course, the, the veterans and the people that I'm working with, it's got to fix the trauma before you can really start to grow. And uh, for these, for Ibogaine and then for the 5-MEO, the toad medicine, uh, Ibogaine is uh, really amazing. I've only done it once at the invite of uh, Crossroads Treatment Center. Last year, I, <laughs> I took ayahuasca, two weeks, three-day weekend, and two weeks later, I went to Crossroads in Mexico to do both the toad and the ibogaine, and uh, then turned around a week later, went to Peru with the veterans for the for the dieta. But uh, ibogaine can really do three big things. Number one, probably heard of, we've heard about a lot, but addiction, and that's just not the level of like a you know pharmaceutical addiction drug addiction, but eating, you know, compulsions, disorders, sexual compulsions, any, any kind of like, you know, compulsive behavior, obsessive compulsive behavior at that level, it can even address, uh, it can address uh, trauma as well. So it can allow you to see the underlying, you know, 
reasons behind the trauma and then persons self-medicating to try to treat the pain instead of listening to it and to be able to process that and then the last one is that uh, brain injury so a lot of these veterans have traumatic brain injury on top of everything else or in the past our medical technology they made of never even made it and now they've got they made it but you know the, the, the traumatic brain injuries are much worse and the uh, the ibogaine can help with that and, and the whole thing too on the addiction side you both see why you know you have that and you get the biochemical release of it so that when you're done you know you have that chance to pull that part out and then you can pull the psychological emotional part out of the compulsion and that gives you this the best chance to you know uh, be successful going forward and then uh, really uh, 5-MeO DMT to me is kind of the, the crown jewel of all this is that once you have, uh, if you need the addiction part, you've got that unhooked, and so you got a fresh start there. You've got the trauma work. Uh, if maybe someone else had the brain injury, you could have that for ibogaine, and then, and then 5-MeO, uh, which of course is another you know neurotransmitter in the brain. It's in all of our brains, just like the DMT, which is in ayahuasca. The, the 5-MeO DMT, it's just like a huge energy pulse that you can send through your system that uh, is gonna it's really good if you untie those knots with ayahuasca through your energy energetic system you can shoot that through and ultimately realize that you're an experience that you're all energy that you can't be created or destroyed and then have source with whatever that you know experiences to you at a, at a higher level <laughs> merge with the consciousness connect with source you know be part of an ocean of infinite love and so to get the trauma work to get the addiction work and then uh, you know cap it off with uh, the 5-MeO is a pretty uh, you know amazing pathway as far as or you know paths as far as it's uh, opening up for us so does the 5-MeO is that not quite as much relating to something specific on the trauma that's kind of at the end it's almost sort of like that highest level transcendent experience total ego ego death transcendence feeling of oneness with everything yeah and i think uh you know these all these experiences are all metaphorical so we can bring them back and the best sort of uh, analogy that i've heard so far let's say just what's the difference between dmt and 5-meo dmt is using the kind of chakra system as a metaphor and that the third eye chakra right the pineal gland is the dmt level and when you smoke dmt or you take ayahuasca you see things you feel things <laughs> right you hear things you might even taste and, and smell things that have meaning to you and you can take that information into you to use it for your own work Whereas with the 5-MeO, there is no information. <laughs> That's all taken away, right? Time and, at, the, at, a, at, a, at a full dose. Time and space are taken away. And so that's <laughs> it's the, the sort of two comparisons. One's like the full information, right? You know, that, that it still comes in through the sensory uh, part. And the other part is just feeling with no you know information coming in and it's just complete experience so those two together really are a nice uh, whole Does and one thing that i'd love to sort of underscore based off of what you said for people i mean i'm trying to imagine for someone who really doesn't have knowledge about this and you know maybe they don't even think about things in terms of say plant medicines, right? They're used to thinking of just psychedelics, LSD, mushrooms. It's a shift to think about these as, as medicines. I mean, I remember even for me, um, being definitely a personal proponent of psychedelics and getting a lot out of mushrooms and acid personally, as a tool to explore consciousness, I was very interested in ayahuasca and people kept using the term medicine and you know, I certainly thought there was a lot to it or I wouldn't have flown all the way down to Peru, but <laughs> I was even kind of, you know, rolling my eyes a little bit internally or just kind of like wondering if that was sort of the lingo among the diehards. But after doing it, there is something really unique about ayahuasca that is it is truly medicine. It is truly 
feeling. And I can understand how funny that might sound or weird that might sound for some people who think about this as a hallucinogen. But I just really want to underscore that this is something that is so not recreational. I mean, the idea that you would do ayahuasca for fun is really comical to those of us who have, who have done it. And I, I just want to give you a chance to kind of clear up any misconceptions that you feel that people have about working with, whether you want to say plant medicines or psychedelics or whatever it is. Sure, and you realize how much of this is tied up in our culture, right? In our language, and uh, all these terms now have cultural associations, and that kind of makes them all pejorative in some way, right? If you say psychedelics, someone's brain might immediately think of 60s and Vietnam and civil rights and all this kind of stuff, right? And so it's very hard to uh, use those words without the cultural association, and I think that's the opportunity, right, for either to use new words or to repurpose old words. And I think that's been the biggest thing for myself is I've come to understand that everything is medicine. Everything is medicine in that it can heal you, make you more whole, make you more connected. And then if you take that as your proposition, then it's just all about, like we were taught when we were kids, you are what you eat, so you should eat the best medicine that you can. And as we know, you should let your food be your medicine. And the whole goal of medicine is to have the effects of the medicine for as long as you can while you're not on it. So the point isn't to be like the pharmaceutical model, taking it all the time, right? It's to be taking something where you have an experience and then you do the work to reintegrate it. And then the things that you reintegrate from that experience, the lessons, the, how it changes your life, that's the real medicine. So yeah, we've got this problem of drugs and pharmaceuticals and plant medicines. And ultimately, what's I've always come back to with these things is that they're already in us. They're not alien, they're not foreign, they're not made up. 5-MeO-DMT, DMT, these endogenous cannabinoids, these endogenous morphines, our brain makes, our, our bodies and brain, salicylic acid, what's in, you know, uh, aspirin, uh, codeine, <laughs> morphine, I mean, are literally our realities mediated by these substances. So I think that uh, we're, yeah, we're trying to uh, recapture and, and redefine what uh, medicine means. And yeah, you know, it's, it's, it's tricky because you just use the word psychedelics and it just, uh, you know, makes so many people uh, instantly, you know, turn off. Right. Right. Yeah, it's a great point. And then I know entheogens is this term people prefer to use. My only issue with using that and only talking about plant medicines is I think it kind of minimizes the value that MDMA and LSD can have therapeutically. So it's yeah, let's talk, of, let's talk about that one, because that's another that's, that's probably the perfect example to show how a lot of these distinctions are just completely full of crap, right? Oh, I, I do this, but I would never do MDMA because this is synthetic. Well, I learned, you know, I remember making nylon at, in a chemistry class at West Point, and then I remember learning years later that nylon is actually a naturally occurring substance, okay? So even though we discovered a way to produce it, it, it already existed in nature. And so... Uh, and it's the same thing with, you'd say, LSD and LSA. So you have MDA, which is a uh, classic psychedelic that's in uh, nutmeg and mace, right? And uh, then you have MDMA, which is the semi-synthetic that is made from a saffron. And so really to, call, to draw like a clear, bright line, right? And say one's on this side and one's on the other, not so. And uh, so, but, but then on the flip side, if you have your, you know, uh, cannabis, right, and then these cannabinoids, and then you go make K2 and spice that are, you know, so far away from what these cannabinoids are that to call them synthetic cannabinoids is a complete stretch, that's really not, you know, <laughs> uh, desirable either. But... To use the other example, going back on LSD versus LSA, you have LSA, which is found, lysergic acid uh, amide, which is found in morning glories, Hawaiian baby wood rose, oliliqui, you know, a n number of other uh, plants. And that's just 
not much different from LSD, lysergic acid diethylamide, just two ethyl groups on it, right, that is considered synthetic. But again, it should really be considered uh, semi-synthetic, and that's how it was discovered. He had basically these ergotamine bases, and he was tweaking out the molecules and seeing if I add these things on, you know, how, how will that change? And so uh, people really are creating artificial distinctions between these things that uh, they don't understand. And to me, something that our body makes that, that we've also made a schedule one drug, I just, you know, that's, that's the sort of problem in all this that I always come back to. And until society, our culture gets honest about that cognitive dissonance, how can, how can we expect to have any kind of rational uh, drug policy? Absolutely. And I mean, once again, like with anything, context is key. I mean, before the 60s, right, the original use of these drugs, let's take LSD, for example, was they were developed and used initially. Let's leave aside the CIA's interest in using it as a <laughs> mind control technique. But the most popular use was uh, among psychiatrists, right, to treat. Oh, yeah. I certainly know alcoholism was one of them. Um, other addictions, depression, I believe, um, create some creativity and problem solving. You know, there was those studies going on. I don't know if that was happening in the fifties, like some of the other studies, certainly the sixties, by the time Jim Fadiman was doing them. But, you know, these were the original uses of these substances, what they were being tested before, before Timothy Leary came along. So it's like, of course, people are finding that they're doing that now. It's like, that was what we already knew, <laughs> you know, in the yeah, 50s, yeah. before research was yeah, shut yeah. down. Yeah, and you're right, it did, it did start off in the 50s and really uh, kept on going into the early 60s, and then we had, you know, Vietnam and civil rights, and then people were like, wow, and <laughs> I don't even know if you can say it without talking about the government stuff, because the government injecting it as a tool to uh, achieve its political objectives, you know, in the, in the spy game, whatever, also kind of who you could one could argue easily that uh, kind of sped up the effect of what was going on in the 60s so instead of you know <laughs> they, they made it worse is what I'm saying by you know helping to have those things uh, be available in society yeah, but totally. yeah you had yeah you had back in the day you had Bill Wilson right for AA you know he credits the beginning of that uh, an LSD experience and actually wanted to have you know those kind of medicines more available, but then, you know, the, the, the clamp down, be, you know, started to happen right in the 60s and all the uh, media scares and all the, uh, you know, uh, kids moving to, you know, to, to hate Ashbury. But uh, yeah, you had Cary Grant do LSD and you had all this really serious, uh, good research, like you said, about creativity and alcoholism and solving all these problems that, you know, the, the culture, uh, kind of like now, we were just, fractured and broken in the culture culture was having trouble uh holding it well francis crick said that using lsd was a key was imperative in helping him to realize the nature of the dna as a double helix and also said that many other scientists at cambridge at the time were experimenting with it to beneficial effect um, yeah, I mean, we yeah, could go I, on and on about that. I mean, <laughs> but yeah, yeah, there's, think, there, yeah, there's books been written. We wouldn't have the whole PC revolution and therefore the internet as well without the 60s psychedelic revolution. That is a direct line, right? Those people who believed in personal empowerment, decentralized control, getting things like the idea of a PC in everybody's hand. Yeah, those, those ideas came straight out of the, of the psychedelic 60s. So. Absolutely. Yeah, we don't get there without that. That's the thing. We don't know our history. So we're like, there's a drug inside of us that we've made illegal because <laughs> it might tell us about ourselves. And, you know, we, we so quickly forget our history. I know. I, I, I hope we have time to circle back at the end of the conversation to politics a little more and how things came constructed. Um, because I, I want to go in a little further into your background in the pharmaceutical industry, because I think that is so interesting. You not only have this military background, but if you can tell people a little bit about your background in the pharmaceutical industry, and I'd love to hear how that shaped your impression of the, the benefits, but also the limitations of um, prescription drugs towards treating trauma and antidepressant and 
these other these other uh, problems that affect veterans. Absolutely, and I thought of something the other day that I hadn't I hadn't shared with someone because it just hadn't occurred to me around this whole pharmaceutical industry. And when I joined it, you know, at the peak in the in the early '90s, uh, but actually like to talk about uh, t today in a little bit more depth. But uh, yeah, so wh where where can I start on the on the pharmaceuticals? How about just telling people what you did, like your work in the pharmaceutical industry when you got out of the military? All right, so when I got out of the military, as a junior military officer, two major tracks they would try to push you on, Man working in plant management or sales, you know, and uh, sales seemed to be a better fit for me. And at that time, they were really heavily recruiting for uh, junior military officers uh, for the pharmaceutical industry. I either at that time, you were female and you were good looking and that would you know uh get you through that process of trying to get back to see the the doctors to influence them or you were a uh, junior military officer because they just knew those kind of people they could uh, be decentralized and could give them a job and wouldn't require a lot of supervision but i i, I ultimately realized that uh just really in the past month how much so that industry uh, bought some of its uh, credibility by the fact that they hired, they created a whole new division at that time so there was two divisions of about 600 reps each and they had we had so many drugs coming out that they created a whole nother division right of 600 reps and 85 percent of those representatives were West Point graduates Wow yeah, I've never had a reason to tell anybody that. And it came out, started you know doing some of these podcasts and writing and whatnot. Yeah, so ultimately Pfizer Pharmaceuticals bought the credibility of the West Point Institution <laughs> to try to uh, have people like me promote its uh, drugs. Because I remember going to the, uh, like a I went to three drug launches in the two and a half years I was at Pfizer, and at one of them, when they'd had this new division come on, it was like a West Point, you know, uh, reunion. <laughs> and uh, then I saw some of the, sorry about that, I saw some of the numbers, you know, uh, showing how many folks from West Point were there. And then, but like I said, it just really came full circle to me. It was like, as a way to buy credibility, right? To say, hey, these guys, you know, cadet will not lie, cheat, or steal duty on our country, if these guys are out pushing our meds, when this is all the very beginning of the synthetic opioids, right, and uh, the SSRIs, you know, before, honestly, anyone really knew <laughs> how great or whatever they were going to be, and so, uh, yeah, it's uh, kind, of, uh, kind of sad when I reflect on it. Well, and so why did you get out of this industry? I saw the benefits in the industry. I was selling some blood pressure medications, you know, uh, pain medications, uh, you know, allergies. So there, you know, there's definitely good stuff. But the, the problem is, is these companies they're not looking to. They really want to sell you magazine subscriptions. They want you to take a drug like a cholesterol drug for the rest of your life. That's that's what they want. That's how they you know make money. And so I saw the good that these medicines could do. But I saw beyond that, it was just a big for, you know, for-profit engagement of finding new customers. So finding, you know, hey, I remember when social anxiety disease came out. Uh, acronym, SAD. <laughs> yeah, it's like, for reals? I mean, we're, or, or, or generalized. And I'm not, believe me, I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to make fun of people there, there's people who have social anxiety and there's people who have general anxiety but i'm talking about the drug companies right making it into a quote disease that we can give you a drug for and they were like general anxiety disorder and i'm like that's kind of life so you know but you can <laughs> and once they prove any of these drugs here's the game it's like the you know, movies, the reason movies suck is because they cost so much and that's why they're all retreads and no one wants to take risks, right? It's the same thing with the drugs. They're not going to try to make something really unique or try to help a small group of people that they're not going to make money on. But then you end up with these drugs that are just what are called Me Too drugs. And, you know, you have 20 other drugs you can write for the same thing. And so kind of uh, what's the point? And then, you know, there's, there's no... Uh, 
There's no reason to. Uh, it's just, it's. <laughs> yeah, I. All right, I screwed that one up, man. So, I'll have to go back and clean that up. <laughs> Not at all. Not at all. Yeah. Let Let me ask. Let me ask you this. So. And I, well, one thing I should actually just underscore for people before I even ask it, because I learned this only recently, was that something like 30 to 50% of people, and this isn't veterans, just people generally who have a need to take an antidepressant don't respond to the medicine. It's just not effective on that. On that. They, they don't work. Yeah, no, sorry. Right. What I was trying to say is that they get, the, you know, they get the indication for one drug and then they sell it for everything else. And you can sell it for all these other off-label indications but they don't require you to test for safety or efficacy so you've got all these drugs that are being prescribed you know 90 percent of their use right is off-label and they don't have to, the drugs don't have to be safe for work and all these uh ssris when they were got approved you know on this 150 point scale that like maps uses i can't remember the name of it for caps for yeah in the, in the government for testing levels of ptsd Testing levels, you know, of, uh, of trauma, anxiety, all that kind of stuff. These people on these meds got like a nine-point improvement, which wasn't statistically different from placebo. Whereas, mm -hmm. you know, something like MDMA and it's right in its phase two clinical trials, like 60, 70-point <laughs> improvement. So the fact that these drugs got approved, they're statistically useless, the SSRIs, every single one of them. In other words, they they couldn't you know they couldn't couldn't uh, beat placebo. And there's only two SSR. There's only two drugs that are on label for uh, PTSD. Two two SSRIs. <laughs> all the other every single other drug that's being prescribed, Suboxone, Seroquel, all these other drugs, they are not indicated for PTSD. Interesting. So, and so it's I mean, basically a, it's a big experiment. That's the whole model. It's a big experiment. Get something to prove for one thing. We'll see how it works on other things for other people. And if that doesn't work out too well and there's damage, well, I guess that's what class action lawsuits are for. And let's just, I mean, I were, I'd be happy to concede even for the sake of argument, you know, if someone, I'm sure many people could step forward and say, this antidepressant really made a big difference for me. And let's concede for the sake of argument, it works for many people, but if, if 30 to 50% of people don't respond to the treatment, it just doesn't work for them because uh, they're genetics or whatever it is, just that's how they're wired, then obviously <laughs> there needs to be a huge alternative or a number of alternatives to address the nearly half of the population who don't respond to them. And also my understanding is even for many of the people who might respond somewhat favorably, these side effects can be pretty severe in terms of some people describe it as feeling like a zombie or things like that. Is, are you familiar with this? I'm just trying to underscore also why people might be seeking alternatives to the status. I think, I think the bigger picture is these medicines have utility. And that's when you have the major life event that you need some support from. These medicines could help people to deal with that. But they're not maintenance drugs because on maintenance drugs, they don't work. <laughs> they stop working. And then you get all the side effects and, and the worst side effects are suicide and suicidal thoughts. So you feel like a zombie. You've put on pause your work to process through your emotional stuff and you feel like killing yourself and that's all you can think about. <laughs> so, you know, all right, so then let's transition. That's, that's a powerful note to sort of underscore what a lot of the problem, how severe it is facing veterans. So there needs to be this alternative. And then what have you seen plant medicines really do for veterans? Yeah, well, cannabis is, like I said, this at first, it's really the gateway to health. So you're a veteran, went to Iraq or Afghanistan maybe multiple times came and they maybe got blown up. They maybe had childhood trauma before they went, which made their likelihood to get PTSD or if they got PTSD, make it worse. And so they come back, they hit the culturally approved numbing medication, alcohol, they're in all the pharmaceuticals, 
they're isolated, disconnected from their fellow uh, comrades, and their you know families can't understand them, and so they then are on these psych meds for long periods of time, which again they're for an emergency situation, not maintenance because they just stop working and then you just get all the side effects. So they eventually try to kill themselves. And if they're unsuccessful and they find cannabis, that's usually how I connect with them. And so then once they're on cannabis, cannabis can help to stabilize all these symptoms of PTSD again, but uh, it's not gonna necessarily solve the underlying trauma. So, <laughs> But it puts them in bubble wrap, and you can wrap someone up in a ton of bubble wrap, and it's, it's going to be okay, you know. And as they go along and they get more and more comfortable, they can just unwrap those layers of bubble wrap until ultimately they don't need it anymore. And then at whatever point, once they're on the cannabis and they're stabilized and they're ready, then they can do these other deeper, powerful plant medicines to open that stuff up. And I'll say something that's not really talked about, but been important to me and other veterans that I've been you know working with and supporting is that cannabis is a great tool outside of the deep reintegrate uh, of the experience of the plant medicine to help in the reintegration because there is no doubt that when you take these medicines it is a form of re-exposure <laughs> you are going back right to see those things that traumatized you except now with less fear and judgment and a bigger wider perspective you can put it in, you know, you, you can accept it in understanding, but it's still uh, traumatic. And I know that after like uncovering something under ayahuasca and then going back and thinking about it, you know, days later, you know what I mean, different times and, and, and continuing to do the work on that, that cannabis has been a great tool to support the potential hyper arousal and all those manifestations of the of how of the trauma that you felt before when it was less controlled, still having you know waves of coming off of it, right of reintegration that you know the, the cannabis can support. Wow, that's yeah. a great so like you're, you're freaked out, but you can now like I'm not as freaked out because I'm going back and visiting this. I understand it more, and the cannabis is helping me mellow. So then again, just taking off those layers of bubble wrap. <laughs> right. Yeah, and. No question. I mean, ayahuasca opens you up so much. I mean, the, the question of integration is a huge one for anyone working with these plant medicines. And so it's actually really good to hear about how cannabis can be helpful because um, that's actually not something that was discussed in my retreat. I should bring that up to the teacher. I'm not sure that she'd be opposed to it. But um, yeah, it's, it's not something that's, that's normally mentioned and so I appreciate you sort of sharing that insight yeah yeah um, I'll say watching the veterans in your documentary that you were involved with soldiers of the vine which I would highly recommend people watch if they haven't seen it was really powerful just seeing what it did for these guys um, I do think a really common theme what I saw at least one of the guys talked about which you touched on at the beginning of this interview when you shared your personal experience and it's the same thing I experienced on my first ceremony with ayahuasca was it's just this profound heart opening experience and ayahuasca can be really rough and intense sometimes when it's untangling those knots and mm -hmm. those karmic if we want to think about them that way um, residue but it can be that's a common theme I hear from people is both on the medicine and then after, as they say, they feel more spacious in their heart. They feel more open. They feel more compassionate. And um, yeah, it's, <laughs> I don't think it's any different than the Grinch, man. I mean, these are all great metaphors and ideas, right? And then the Grinch. Right? <laughs> yeah, the, when the Grinch, right? And it's. <laughs> He sees that people are still singing without their Christmas gifts in his heart, right? You know, it gets bigger. And yeah, when you have a bigger heart, you have more capacity for love. And so then, and then you, you feel safer and stronger by that greater capacity, right? So, uh, right. yeah. <laughs> I like that, the analogy of the Grinch. Ayahuasca is so powerful. She can even 
you're the Grinch. You're so crispy. <laughs> we'll be on Facebook this afternoon That's seeing funny. the meme. <laughs> you know, already popping up by interjecting into the universe. I'd love for you to share what you... I've heard you talk about the larger purpose of this work in terms of not only helping plant medicines to help veterans heal from their trauma, which is big enough alone, but you've also talked about it in this larger social, political, historical context where you talk about how the, you talk about the, there's going to be an, the, how do you put it, that those who are basically the agents, the front line of the war machine, are going to have to be the one who kind of reforms the military industrial complex and helps our society to realize that violence is, is not the answer. And I, I'd love for you to not only put it in your own words, but to share for the audience, what, what makes you so confident, and I'm thinking of people who haven't worked with ayahuasca, because I get what you're saying, but who might think, well, what makes you think that people who would go through this kind of experience would necessarily share a certain viewpoint like that? Well, so, that's a great question. For myself, as I started to do this work and started to heal myself and started to connect with other veterans who were at the you know, front of this movement to heal themselves, to reintegrate, to end the drug war, you know, in, in, uh, I, I asked, I, I, and kind of like for myself as well as everybody else, I got, I'm just, we're all figuring this out as we go. I said, so, this whole plant medicine, this whole earth medicine system protocol we're trying to build pathway to help people reintegrate is that just so we can send more people into the war machine <laughs> you know and uh i for myself you know I, I didn't want to say hey i don't you know this is a question that i have for myself i'm trying to figure this out i'm sure you guys are as well let's you know reflect on each other as a group and then as i continue to do more work myself i could see that uh you know this was that the it wasn't for the outputs of the war machine to try to bring as it were the the war machine down from the outside it was to reflect back into the war machine and say you didn't reintegrate us we did and we have the best moral authority position perspective insight understanding experience to tell you that sending people to afghanistan which is the place where empires go to die, where Alexander didn't win, where the Brits didn't win, where the Soviets didn't win, and to go back there for 14 years and have our longest war on history, it's not achieved any of our political objectives, and we have so much mission creep that people can't even remember what our original objectives were. So it's not that war is bad, it's just war doesn't get us the political objectives we want anymore because ultimately we're the main superpower, right? And the only people that can really fight against us are in these guerrilla things. So we've built this huge war machine, which doesn't even fight that war and can't win it. And you can't win those wars because those wars are come over to our place and we'll bog you down for long enough that however you came in is positive. You, within, you know, a year, everyone will want you to go and will want to kill you. So veterans have to be the ones to tell the system that... It doesn't work. And so it's not any kind of moralistic, you know what I mean, or <laughs> religious vision or whatever. It's just the reality that this isn't working and we need to be honest and tell the system, you know, to stop. And uh, I've met people, you know, that have, uh, you know, over 20 years in, multiple deployments and I don't even know if we have the luxury to say it can keep on going because we may have just broken the whole military permanently with this whole Iraq and Afghanistan thing. Hey, Ian. Yeah, man, did I, did I lose you? We lost you for just a sec, but it's cool you're back. You were just saying um, we may have broken the whole military. Yeah, by this whole Iraq and Afghanistan deployments you know permanently and so war has as a uh, as a biological instrument has brought us together humanity encircling the globe 
more so than we'd have without it and spun off all these amazing technologies that actually have improved our life, like, like the internet through DARPA. But uh, it's sort of like we got fossil fuels to get us to renewable energy and we got the meat to give us big brains to be smart enough to realize we don't have to eat meat. It's the same thing with the war machine. The war machine got us here and now we need to stop because it doesn't work anymore. And we need to come up with a new machine. Wow, that is such a powerful message. And I agree. I think, I think in general, you know, it, it is going to take a lot of people with a military background to stand up and, and push back against the military industrial complex. I mean, in part because we see it politically, right? Politicians love to wrap themselves in the flag, especially those on the right, but both parties, right? Oh, yeah, that's that's the real that's the real truth. It's the war machine is is better integrated across our society than anything else. Oh, it is. <laughs> it's very bipartisan. And if you don't have military experience, it's very, it's particularly tough to not oppose a war as a politician because then you're seen as being weak on national security. But if you're like some combat hero, you know, then you've got some more political capital to spend if you're willing to spend it, which not all of them are. But um, it, this whole talk of politics raises up a really interesting point around reform because many of these same people on the right uh, who oppose the drug war, uh, excuse me, who favor the drug war and oppose reform are also the same people who are wrapping themselves in the flag. And now all of a sudden that we've got veterans who are saying that they're using these substances to heal from PTSD, it's going to put these politicians in a very uncomfortable position if a veteran group comes up to them at a public rally and says, why don't I have the right, I serve my country, why don't I have the right to heal in a way that suits me best? I mean, what is, I know you've been politically active, I'm just curious what the response of a Jeff Sessions or a Ted Cruz or any people in that camp is to a veterans group when they say something like that? Well, as veterans, we've definitely come to understand our political power, right? Because it's hardest to say no politically to a veteran. And as a result of that, veterans who've been on this medicine path have figured out that they owe it to society to, to tell them the truth. So. <laughs> and then ha have you been at, cause I know you've been to DC and things like that. Have you been active with pressuring any, your Congressman, your Senator, your governor? I'm just curious what the response is, uh, say Ted Cruz or any of these people when you approach them or their policy director or anything sure. like that. Yeah, I, I can give you a little insight because I, Spoke to Ted Cruz, two of Ted Cruz's uh, aides in D.C. two and a half years ago when I went up there and met a bunch of veterans when we were lobbying, you know, to change the laws and to change the protocols of the VA so that veterans could have more access to this stuff. And, uh, hmm. Sorry, man. Can you ask that one again, bro? Oh, sure. <laughs> no problem. I was just going to say... What is their response when you say, yeah, yeah, sorry, so have the right to yeah. use these substances? Yeah. So we met with two of Ted Cruz's aides when we were in D.C. Uh, two and a half years ago with other veterans lobbying to change these laws around medical cannabis. And uh, it was awesome in the way that they were open to us talking to them. There was a bunch of activists there together. We talked to them for about 45 minutes. It was truly lobbying, standing outside the offices in the hallway. And, uh, you know, things like, hey, have you heard of an endocannabinoid system? <laughs> no, well, you have one. Well, let me tell you all about it. So uh, you realize there's just so much education that needs to happen, and prohibition has totally prevented that. Think of 1,800 Pfizer reps when I was there, right? out calling on the doctors in the United States, plus all the other companies, right? Versus 
uh, us now trying to change the drug laws and those companies with that impetus and selling the whole pharmaceutical model, <laughs> who's your competition, right? So there's just uh, no way that uh, you can easily just change that momentum overnight. And so the, the response is there's a lot of education, there's a lot of cultural prejudice around this, there's a lot of... Uh, the default is is that we think that uh, medicine is pills, you know, and we think that folk medicine is doesn't work because now we have modern medicine, and that's a complete fallacy to throw out all that uh, still useful, you know, uh, medicine and and history and tradition, and so uh, yeah, that, that, then then we have this model where you're like. I have a sh crappy lifestyle, I therefore have disease. I want to go to the doctor and the doctor is going to give me a pill to fix it. So instead of like, why is my knee, th why is my knee throbbing or itching or whatever's going on is telling me information about how you change my life, please give me a pill to turn off that information so I don't have to hear from it again. This is, this is what people want. <laughs> Absolutely, the shortcut, they don't want to change their habits. No, and so and the companies are fine to sell to those you know customers, even if their lifespans are resultingly shorter and the quality of their life is shorter. Because so, to them, it's just it's just the bottom line. Are you relatively optimistic about willingness to reform drug laws, uh, based on sort of the openness of, of your conversations with politicians, or do you still think we are a long ways off of either state or federal reform of these laws? Well, obviously things are changing, right? We have, was it 28 states, 29 states now that have... Uh, yeah, cannabis is looking that. really good. I guess I'm thinking about um, the other psychedelics or euthanogens, whatever we want to call them, but... Yeah, and I think it's fair to say, too, on the cannabis, it's still going to take a while, right? It's inevitable, but it's going to take a while. And on psychedelics, that's a great question, because I was always worried about that. First, I knew the drug war would end when it didn't be, when it became uh, economically you know, non-viable to continue to prosecute, and that's what's happening right now. We just, <laughs> we spend all the money, we don't have the money to spend on it, and it doesn't work. And... Uh, you know, it doesn't, uh, I was always worried about how psychedelics was going to get left behind potentially as cannabis finally, you know, started to get legalized and medicalized. But I can see with the opiate crisis and the psych med crisis and the fact, right, depression is going to be a number one killer by 2020 and the uh, leading cause of death, I think below people 45 or 54 is accidental overdose that, uh, these uh, psychedelics, these entheogens, these earth medicines, they are of necessity going to dovetail with cannabis and ride the wave of these plant medicines to solve the health crisis, the mental health crisis that we have, especially in this country, but really uh, across the world. And the fact that the whole world has got trauma. I mean, if you if you're alive and you pay attention to the news, uh, how and you, you have compassion, empathy, how can you not be traumatized to some degree by what's going on in the world? Yeah, absolutely. Well, perhaps that's a, a good note to close on and sort of the cautious optimism for things changing in the future. And I do think the, uh, the ball seems to be rolling in the right direction, certainly on cannabis, right? So there's a lot to be hopeful yeah. for. Um, but I don't well, want to close. I'll, I'll, oh, go I'll, ahead. I'll give you my take. I'll, I'll give you my sort of, you know, close to that is that uh, nature's in charge and nature accomplishes everything, but it, you're right, but it never has to rush. And so <laughs> we're the ones that have expectations on how this is supposed to go. But overall, uh, to me, nature knows what it's doing. And then the, the, the healing of veterans healing themselves and then. Uh, getting those deeper messages and understanding right through the, through the medicines helps guide us to both figure out how to do this and to have the um, you know firm conviction the faith that uh, 
we're on the right path because basically the, the you know the plant medicines keep telling you so right right no i think that's beautiful and i think it's a great way to phrase it you know everything that is here everything that needs to be provided for us is here but it's up to us ultimately to you know take that step forward walk that path amen brother adrian <laughs> well thank you for doing the work that you do ian and i want to make sure that people know where they can find you and also if anyone wants to get involved in either support veterans in this journey themselves uh or learn more about the work that's being done around veterans and plant medicines you know what resources should they be researching Sure. Well, people can find me on the web at uh, Psychedelic Musulman. I'm sure we'll tie that into the you know, notes of your podcast. Absolutely. And uh, really, other than that, you know, it's, it's so early, so early stages. It's really veterans connecting up together and doing this work. Uh, but there are some veterans organizations out there. Weed for Warriors Project that uh, kind of frontline getting cannabis to veterans in that community, which is a, the whole form of medicine to support them reintegrating the really first line stuff. Like don't call kill yourself, you know, call us on the phone. And then uh, veterans for entheogenic therapy, kind of, okay, once you've got, you know, your trauma treated under control, right? The symptoms of it, then you work with these other plant medicines. And, uh, and I just, uh, joined a, a good friend of mine who was, you know, uh, one of the people that went down to Peru, Matt Kale, who's formed uh, Veterans for Natural Rights and uh, plans for it to be a 501c4, which is, uh, you know, a political advocacy organization. So <laughs> these like, we're, we're building out the infrastructure, right? We're creating these things. So people can go watch our, our uh, documentaries. You said online, it's on YouTube uh, for free. And, uh, but it's in connect with some of these groups and just really right now what we're doing is just building that infrastructure and connecting the veterans together and figuring these things out as we go. So it's still really uh, early stages. Excellent. Well, I will get those links from you and make a point of sharing those on my website and on social media so we can get the word out and sounds like exactly the right time to get involved in the early stages. So Thank you so much, Ian, for the work that you do and for coming on the podcast and sharing it. And I, for one, want to support you in whatever way that I can. So thank you, brother, for all the work that you do. Yeah, well, I appreciate you as well, Adrian, and for reaching out to me and uh, connecting with me and giving uh, myself and others that I'm, you know, representing the opportunity to uh, share this information and messages. and. Uh, in the positive outlook, I mean, I'm <laughs> this to me, it all ends well. I just don't have ownership of what that picture looks like. But uh, the more I can align myself with uh, nature, the easier the the flow seems to go. <laughs> That's what I'm going to keep doing. <laughs> awesome. Sounds like a plan. I'll sign up for that. Well, thanks so much, Ian. Uh, let's talk again soon, okay? All right, brother. Thanks Peace. for your time. Take care. Thank you so much to those of you who are still listening, and I hope that you found that to be as enriching and inspiring of a conversation that I did. I think that the work that Ian is doing is really commendable. And so I'll keep my comments short and sweet because um, that was a full hour for the interview, but I just want you to know that I will be including the information for Ian's website, Psychedelic Muscle Man, in the introduction um, to the blog, or excuse me, to the podcast on my blog, as well as links to some other organizations that are doing great work as well, like Veterans for Entheogenic Therapy and Weed for Warriors. And I would strongly encourage you to support these organizations if you, um, if you feel open to their message. And even if you're not ready to go that far just yet, if you are not sure you're not swayed, but you're a little more open to the idea than you were at the beginning of listening to this podcast. Share those feelings with someone that you're comfortable sharing it with. And start. let's start having a conversation as a country that way. You know, one conversation at a time with parents, with friends, then with coworkers, then with larger groups. So thank you so much for listening. 
Thank you for your curiosity. And if you enjoyed this podcast, I'd ask you to please leave a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or the Google Music Store. And if you're interested in learning more, I'll be releasing several posts as well about my thoughts concerning my conversation with Anne. And you can find those at hackingconsciousness.org, as well as through the social media sites, either the Hacking Consciousness Facebook page or at Hacking Conscious with no G. So H-A-C-K-I-N. C-O-N-S-C-I-O-U-S at Twitter is where I'm most active along with Facebook. So thank you. Take care and see you next week.